Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Adjua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to address you, our regular listeners. We know you have enjoyed the Living Proof podcast, as evidenced by the more than 150,000 downloads to date. Thanks to all of you. We'd like to know what value you may have found in the podcast. We'd like to hear from all of you, practitioners, researchers, students, but especially our listeners who are social work educators. How are you using the podcast in your classrooms? Just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the Contact Us tab. Again, thanks for listening, and we look forward to hearing from you. Hi from Buffalo, where part of life in summer is enjoying free outdoor jazz concerts on the steps of the Albright Knox Art Gallery on the shores of Hoyt Lake in Delaware Park. I'm Peter Sabota. As the prevalence and impact of traumatic events on many of the clients served by helping professionals gains visibility, it's also becoming clear that those helpers themselves are at risk of developing secondary traumatic stress. In this episode, Dr. Brian Bride discusses the conceptual issues involved when discussing secondary traumatic stress, the relevance to direct social work practice, and the current research in this area. Dr. Bride shares his thoughts on the terms compassion fatigue and burnout and what these terms share and don't share with secondary traumatic stress. He discusses the protective and preventative factors for helping professionals and stresses the importance of institutional or organizational support in this area. After giving voice to the seeming reluctance on the part of many social workers to utilize clinical services themselves, Dr. Bride concludes his discussion by describing his current research with substance abuse counselors and secondary traumatic stress. Dr. Brian Bride is Associate Professor and Interim Director of the PhD program at the School of Social Work at the University of Georgia, where he is also a fellow at the Institute of Behavioral Research. He has 20 years of clinical and consulting experience in mental health and substance abuse treatment services. His research and teaching focuses on treatment services for women, older adults, and persons living with HIV AIDS. Dr. Bride developed the Secondary Traumatic Stress Scale, a widely used instrument for measuring secondary traumatic stress. Dr. Bride was interviewed by Dr. Lisa Butler, Associate Professor here at the UB School of Social Work. Hi, my name is Lisa Butler. I'm an Associate Professor in the School of Social Work at the University of Buffalo, and it's my great pleasure today to be speaking with Dr. Brian Bride. Welcome. Thank you. It sounds like your main area of research is in secondary or vicarious traumatization. Is that right? Yes, it is. So how did you get interested in this area? Actually, I would point to two events in in my life. One was when I was an undergraduate, and I was a psychology major. I knew I wanted to go into a a counseling profession, but wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with that. And I took a class in history. It was actually a, a class on America and Vietnam in which a former Vietnam helicopter pilot came to speak about his experiences in Vietnam, his struggle with PTSD, especially when he returned to the States, and his struggle with substance abuse related to that. 
He also brought along his wife, a woman named Patience Mason, who then spoke a lot about the impact on her and their family of his experiences with PTSD. And so that was of great interest to me. A few years ago, I entered, a few years later, I entered my master's program at Florida State University where Charles Figley was a professor and he's one of the real founders of this area. And I worked with him as an assistant, research assistant, and he tasked me to work on an instrument to measure secondary traumatic stress. And so that's where I really began to get interested and where my work on developing an, an instrument to measure this really got started. Could you give us a sort of working definition for vicarious traumatization? Or sec- which do you prefer, secondary I, or? I use secondary traumatic okay. stress. Okay. Um, although I will sometimes use them interchangeably. For me, the definition is, uh, the real brief definition is it's post-traumatic stress that is attained through indirect exposure to trauma. It's the same process, but rather than being directly traumatized, you, the individual hears about the stories of someone else who's been traumatized. And that may be family members or professionals or really through any sort of mechanism where you typically consistently hear traumas, it could occur. Was any of this part of your training, I mean, prior to Charles Figley, was any of this part of your training in psychology or? No, not at all. Not at all. Not, not at even all. touched on? It wasn't touched on. And partly that's because it was Charles Figley and Lori Perlman both around the same time started talking about this, which was really around the mid-1990s, which was when I was in graduate school. Prior to that, when I was an undergraduate, it was really just not even talked about. Really, the first instance of it being discussed in the literature, though, dates back to the 70s with Sarah Haley, who was a VA social worker, and she published an article titled When the Patient Reports Atrocities, which was about her work with Vietnam veterans. But after that, it kind of dropped off the face of, of the world, so to speak. Until the 90s. Until the 90s. I mean, historically, you also have to remember that PTSD just became a diagnostic category in 1980. So, for instance, when I I had this class where I was, where Patience Mason spoke, PTSD really was a formal entity only for seven or eight years. How would one know whether one is at risk of developing it or has developed it? There are several instruments available, one of which is my instrument, the Secondary Traumatic Stress Scale, which is a real, very brief 17-item scale, which is aligned with the DSM for PTSD criteria. Kind of the classic experience is to experience trauma symptoms. Um, perhaps the first that begin to emerge are things like nightmares or bad dreams about someone's work, if it's a professional, their work with someone who's been traumatized about that clients or their many clients' histories or having dreams about having similar experiences to them. Secondary trauma also happens with family members, so uh, there's lots of research. There's some research about spouses having dreams of um, combat, for instance, when they've Mm -hmm. never faced combat. So there's also a variety of anxiety-type symptoms that may occur and really changes in how one views the world and interacts with the world in terms of Things like feeling safe, being overprotective, being hypervigilant around danger and, and those sorts of things. I'm interested in your thoughts on how it relates to re-traumatization because also being exposed to an individual's trauma history can yeah. reactivate one's own. Uh, can, can you speak to that? Yeah, bit? absolutely. And early on, it was theorized that 
having a history of trauma would put place someone more at risk for secondary trauma right. uh, for exactly the reason that you're you're um, talking about that if you're hearing stories of someone's trauma especially if they're similar traumas to the ones right. that, that you've experienced that they may reactivate the trauma for you the research has actually been very mixed on that um, in some cases there seems to be no association in some cases it, it does seem to play out that someone with a past experience of trauma. And interestingly, it's more about recent traumas in the last few years, it seems, rather than childhood traumas, um, maybe at more risk for secondary trauma. But there's also some studies that show the opposite, that people with a past trauma history may be less susceptible to secondary traumatic stress. I wonder if it's a function of how well they've processed what's Exactly. That's exactly what, what I think it is. Is right. It's a matter of have they processed it, have they resolved the, the trauma issues, have they developed coping mechanisms, um, and those sorts of things. And that's something that I'm starting to try to look at with my research to see if that's the case. Well, I guess that makes me wonder also about healthcare workers who are at risk of being exposed to this kind of thing with experience. Mm-hmm. And even perhaps with some early secondary traumatization in their in their work, perhaps they build up defenses and processing and self care practices that help them. Is that is that accord with what you? Yeah, think, absolutely. Um, that that's exactly how I think about. It. The, there's some research that shows a strong correlation between experience, years of experience, and lower levels of secondary traumatic mm-hmm. stress. And that's what I think that's that's about. Well, I think it could be two things. It could be that people who are just naturally resilient to that may stay in the field longer so that there may be people who are very susceptible who have intense secondary trauma experiences early on leave the field and we do have anecdotal evidence that people do that but i think it's also definitely the case that people develop mechanisms to cope uh, in their professional careers and and ways to deal with the, the traumatic images that they experience or the stories they hear as well. There has never been a longitudinal study at this point of secondary, the development of someone's secondary trauma over the career. Yeah. That's, I, I, you don't have to answer this, but I'm curious if you've ever had this experience of secondary trauma. Because I know that most professionals have. I actually have had small bits of symptoms. I've never right. really been very affected by it. Um, I have a number of close colleagues that I worked when I was in practice that I worked with that certainly did experience it. it so it doesn't come from personal experience, but I'm very attuned to, to colleagues who, who do experience it. I've had experience of research assistants being traumatized yeah. by reading materials or listening to tapes in research. And so it's, it's really an issue sort of across the board. Yeah. So why do you think this topic is of particular relevance to social workers? I view secondary traumatic stress as kind of a, a normal occupational hazard of, of doing clinical work with traumatized populations. And so with social workers, I can't think of a field of practice in which you're not facing clients who have experienced trauma. I mean, you may be in a setting where your primary focus isn't around dealing with the trauma, but um, certainly we're working with traumatized individuals, period. And in doing any sort of thorough assessment, that's likely to come up and may come up in any any way. So really, in any field of direct practice, um, trauma is there, and social workers are going to be exposed to it. So that places them particularly at, at risk for experiencing secondary traumatic stress. And one of the things that we've has long been suspected in the field and is now starting to show up in research to confirm it is that there's a relationship between secondary traumatic stress and turnover in the field. 
Um, so far, the research is really around turnover intention, people's intention to leave, um, because there hasn't been a longitudinal study. Uh, but it seems to be pretty clear that that's the case, which has implications broader for the field. You know, if, if, if we're investing time and money and resources and energy and educating social workers for a very important work, um, and they're spending their own resources and time, it, it's certainly a shame if people leave the field prematurely due to this. And then the issue of turnover affects quality of services as well. Absolutely. And you're losing all that experience, too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm interested also in, in how um, secondary traumatization uh, relates to compassion fatigue, which sure. is another term. Yeah, actually, um, this comes up a lot, the issue of how, how is secondary trauma secondary traumatic stress and compassion fatigue different. They're actually, from my perspective, um, they're, it's the exact same thing. They're, they're synonyms. They refer to the same thing. Uh, Charles Figley introduced the term secondary traumatic stress, and he also introduced the term compassion fatigue in reference to secondary traumatic stress. And his rationale for doing so was that at the time, he talked about secondary traumatic stress and then secondary traumatic stress disorder being the experience of having severe enough secondary traumatic stress that you can meet the criteria for PTSD. Um, and he was concerned that that would be too pathologizing for clinicians to embrace, that clinicians would be uh, reluctant to say, hey, you know, I'm experiencing secondary traumatic stress disorder, but felt that perhaps compassion fatigue would be le less pathologizing and that they'd be more likely to, to um, recognize that and, and seek help for it. So it's kind of a, a more friendly term that, that he introduced. Um, but he's very clear in his writings and, um, and in his talks about it, this is the same thing. Um, the difficulty comes in that compassion fatigue as a term has been used in many different ways. Yes, I've heard it also associated with that it's a combination of secondary traumatization and burnout. Absolutely, yeah. 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 So how do you think burnout relates to um, this? It's a good point. <laughs> You're very good. Uh, so burnout... Um, Secondary traumatic stress and burnout um, co-occur to a great degree. So there's a high correlation between the two, which makes sense. You know, if you're doing work that is um, putting you at risk for experiencing traumatic stress symptoms, um, then that's really very emotionally draining work and has an impact on one's emotions. And kind of the key feature of burnout is emotional exhaustion. So it, to me, it really makes sense that those might occur together. They are distinct in that secondary traumatic stress only occurs with traumatized populations. So burnout can occur in people work with really any sort of population, any sort of difficult population. And actually, in the, in the reality, is burnout is more about the organizational demands and the workload as compared to a lack of resources rather than the actual client population. Yeah, and so I can imagine that mixture with having traumatized clients can be right. damaging. Right. Yeah. You know, and if you have the institutional resources where you're not completely overloaded uh, with cases and you have supervision, and so, so if you have the organizational support, you're better able to deal with the secondary traumatic stress and resolve it, where if those things aren't there, it's going to increase the likelihood of secondary traumatic stress as well as burnout. What do you do to teach your social work students about this? I bring it up in as many classes as I can okay. uh, around self-care. 
I certainly have found in, in discussions with colleagues and with certainly with students across the nation that unfortunately it doesn't seem like self-care is being talked about a lot in mm-hmm. schools of social work. Mm-hmm. We're trying to push it here yeah. in a big way. Yeah. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And I think that's what's needed is a institutional commitment to making it a priority in the educational process. I think what happens right now is it's people like myself and yourself who have an interest and in awareness around these things who will bring it up in their classes. But folks who are not immersed in the, the trauma field may not even be aware of it, let alone teach about it. So if you were, you know, when you teach about it, what, for example, preventative measures can students take and, and social workers in the yeah, field? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the first step is just basic stress management. So learning self-care activities that would be useful for secondary trauma as well as burnout or, or any sort of healthy lifestyle, exercise, enough sleep, those sorts of things. It's also very important to learn how to have some emotional separation from the work, so to be able to disengage from being a social worker. How does one learn how to do that? Yeah, that, you know, <laughs> that's an excellent question. And in this field, it's really a challenge because many people come to social work. You know, it's not just a job. Social workers don't come just for a paycheck. They come because they're they're passionate about the work. They really uh, are dedicated to helping people and often will go, you know, to extreme lengths to do so. So it's kind of counterintuitive for many social workers to turn it off. Yet it's absolutely necessary to remain in the field from my perspective is if you don't do that and if you're a social worker 24 7 you are going to get burnout and you're going to experience secondary traumatic stress and you might very well leave the field i think what's really necessary is i don't think in the classroom i can really teach that other than to discuss the importance of it i think the important piece is to have supervisors and administrative support to kind of really make that part of organizational culture that you know you need to leave work at work and have fun and take days off and and do those sorts of things certainly there's some settings where you know you are on call but it's pretty rare that someone would be on call for 24 7 Mm -hmm. those sorts of things so when those times occur where you're not on call or you're not supposed to be working that you really learn how to do something different I guess what I've seen with our students is very often they're putting their own needs last. Yes. And even and we try to remind them that not only do they matter, but taking care of themselves matters to their clients' welfare as well. Absolutely. But that's a hard message to it convey is. successfully. It is. I mean, do you have any recommendations about it, it, how to teach that? I think one of the things, and I, I will say I haven't actually done this, but at the University of Georgia we have a class, which in many many schools of social work have something similar, where there's a uh, seminar along with the field where the, the students will come together with an instructor to talk about what's going on in the field, kind of like a group supervision mm-hmm. process. And I think you could use that sort of mechanism to really process and walk people through. And you'd really have to talk to the students about, or actually, you know, engage them in a conversation about, okay, what do you do when you go home? And provide some options for things that they could do differently. So, uh, also, I'm interested in hearing your recommendations for what students or professionals in the field should do once, if they believe they've developed secondary traumatic stress. You know, I think it differs based on how extreme or, or how severe the experience they're having. 
What we think is for many people, if they're not in the most severe range, is that recovery from secondary trauma can be fairly rapid, as opposed to often with burnout, it's, you know, you really need a good time, piece of time away from the, from the work. So things like taking vacation can be really helpful. One of the things that I believe is really, really important is either clinical supervision or peer supervision. Peer support is really turning out to be a very important factor. So if I would suggest to someone who is beginning to experience secondary traumatic stress that they find the support of their colleagues and be able to talk about it. Um, I think having peer support groups, whether they're formal or informal, for instance, when I was in practice in a substance abuse treatment agency, you know, we did kind of impromptu debriefings and discussions while we were charting, those sorts of things. It wasn't a formal set-aside time. But it's really important to be able to process the things that we've heard and seen with clients and how that's making us feel and things that we can do to, to begin to deal with it. And just with primary trauma, where one of the most important factors in recovery is being able to talk about and process the trauma and to really take the power away from it and diminish diminish the negative aspects of it. I think that's the same with secondary trauma. It sounds like unless you're severely traumatized, you don't need to seek professional help, I don't think. No, I don't, I don't think so. But I certainly would say that there are, you know, there's a range of experiences with secondary traumatic stress. And the ultimate negative outcome is that one would meet the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, in which case I do certainly think, and perhaps I don't think you necessarily have to fully meet the criteria to seek professional help. Um, but in those cases, I think it's probably, once you get to that point, it probably is a necessary component of recovery. That's not to say that seeking therapy wouldn't help at lower levels. I do think it would. Um, and that's another means of, of gaining support in addition to peer support. And we have to recognize that, you know, there are social workers who work in rural settings where they don't have a lot of access to peer support. There are social, you know, many social workers in solo private practice. Um, and I think those are the folks that may be particularly at risk because they don't have the obvious mechanisms to process it. I guess I think of also therapy potentially for some people being part of their self-care program. Absolutely. Absolutely. On an ongoing basis. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is. So I guess for those who have very severe secondary traumatic stress, I would say they absolutely should seek therapy. For I think it's an important, as you said, an important part of self-care for you know anyone who's doing this sort of work for any reason and could be a very useful preventative measure. I've noticed in social workers there is actually a reluctance. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm wondering if you could speak to that, what, what that's about. Yeah. Because it's, I, I've been, I come from a psychology background and, and where it's, it's much more normative for people to get therapy and see it as sort of a healthy thing to seek out for self-care and, and personal growth and whatnot. And so I, I've been a little surprised by that reaction that I've seen in, yeah. some, in some folks. Yeah. And, and I try to encourage students. I, th- I think it's their responsibility to make sure they've got their issues, you know, well understood and managed and to be better for their clients. But can you speak to that? Yeah, you know, I think I think one of the pieces of that has to do with role identity, that social workers see themselves as we are the helpers, we are the experts, we are the people who are there to help others work through these issues and deal with their problems. And then by extension, if we're the experts, then we certainly know how to do it for ourselves and we perhaps may not need the help. Right. Maybe one aspect or that it's a failure on our part 
that we aren't able to deal with the stresses and the strains of the job. And so by seeking professional help, then that's admitting some sort of weakness, which I think is unfortunate because I don't see it. I see it as a sign of strength that one might recognize that that would be helpful and useful and we should do it. Yeah, it is a bit paradoxical that, you know, some professionals think it's good enough for their clients. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, anyway, so I, I mean, I try to push it, but I'm very interested to sort of hear, I, I appreciate you speaking to that because I think it's a real under-discussed issue. Yeah, I agree field. with you. So you've mentioned a couple areas like longitudinal research that you think are important sort of going forward in, in this area. And anything else? I'm very interested to hear what you're doing these sure. days in um, planning. Well, you know, one of my primary projects right now is looking at secondary traumatic stress and substance abuse counselors in particular. And part of that research is really looking at the relationship between secondary trauma and turnover among substance abuse counselors and looking at different levels of factors. So what are the personal factors that experiences secondary trauma and self-care activities? Um, what's the organizational variables that are involved. So mm-hmm. is there support and resources? Is there an organizational culture around self-care and the importance of, of dealing with trauma and burnout? And are there tangible resources provided? Is there a culture and those sorts of things to see kind of what influences the development of secondary traumatic stress or helps prevent the development of secondary traumatic stress and how those factors relate to the translation of secondary traumatic stress into turnover intentions. Are you asking also whether they are the counselors are trained in in yes in awareness of yes this absolutely uh, yeah okay. I'm asking about their training in working with trauma but also in their training around self care how how much self care the importance of self-care was placed in their educational programs or in their continuing education. So is this a group that tends to show a lot of secondary trauma? They do. They show... So are their clients revealing a lot of trauma? Yes. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Trauma is very highly prevalent in clinical substance abuse populations. Um, And there's a very high rate of comorbidity between PTSD and and substance abuse. And there's actually a, a decent amount of evidence suggesting that a large number of the people in treatment are there because of trauma, that, there's, that the substance abuse is really a self-medication process for, for the tra- traumatic experiences. And if, if in substance abuse treatment we don't address the trauma, then there's a higher rate of, of relapse. So it's there. Um, what isn't happening so much in substance abuse treatment is explicit trauma work such that trauma you know specific. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so there's not a lot of places or practitioners i mean there's certainly some out there that uh put a focus on doing trauma therapy within substance abuse treatment for instance um while that may not be happening the client stories about trauma come up a great deal so they may not be necessarily focusing on resolving them but they're coming up a lot in terms of how this played into my substance abuse and and those sorts of things this is very interesting to me because my my sense this isn't my area but my sense was at least in the past trauma and substance abuse were really not addressed together and to the great disadvantage of the substance abuse treatment i think absolutely i think this is very exciting that that this awareness it seems to be more much more common now 
Yeah, and that's actually part of my study as well, is to just document what is being done in uh, in a national sample substance abuse treatment centers around assessment of trauma, treatment of trauma, referral for trauma services. You know, how do they deal with them? Do they deal with do they deal with the trauma at all? If they do treat it, are they using evidence based practices? Are histories routinely taken? Do you think? Um, or do you know yet? We don't know yet. Um, you know, anecdotally from my own experience in the field. Um, you know, histories are taken, especially trauma yeah, trauma histories. Um, now, for folks like you and me that are really immersed in the trauma field, I wouldn't say that there are extensive trauma histories, but certainly things like uh, sexual abuse as a child and sexual assault and physical abuse are often often addressed, or well, at least at least asked about. <laughs> yes. What about past this, beyond this? Where do you see yourself going after this large study? My hope is that this, this study will lay the groundwork for getting funding to do a longitudinal study. And as I mentioned earlier, that's never been done, and it's really very much needed um, because there are a lot of unanswered questions that a longitudinal study might be able to answer. One of those being, as we mentioned before, is we don't know what the trajectory of secondary traumatic stress is. It may be that the majority of people entering the field, I mean, I certainly suspect the majority of people entering the field experience some symptoms. Um, but it may be that most of them experience some symptoms, learn to resolve it, and move on and have lengthy careers. Um, it may be that there's a great number of people who very early on leave the field because of this experience. Um, I certainly, in my own research, when I do surveys, both in social work and in other settings with substance abuse counselors, for instance, and child welfare, um, typically get surveys returned unanswered with some sort of note saying, I'm no longer doing this work, but this is why. So wow. thank you for studying it. So anecdotally, we know some people are leaving. So there's just the issue of, of kind of trajectory of secondary trauma, how it relates to burnout and turnover in the field. The second piece is, is I'm really interested in looking at kind of the longitudinal trajectory of the development of symptoms, not just related to turnover, but for instance, do the kind of classic PTSD or DSM criteria symptoms emerge first, then are there the more uh, kind of worldview changes, changes in how someone operates in the world? Do those follow? Do they emerge together? Does it emerge vice versa? Those sorts of things, which I think are really important. And then with the longitudinal study, we really get to look at, you know, what measures taken help resolve the issue or can help mitigate the process. Is it your sense that it would be the intrusion symptoms that would be more this prominent yeah. in secondary? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. There's, and my research kind of bears that it, out. Yeah, anecdotally, that, yeah. that would be yeah. what I've heard absolutely. experienced. Good. Those are the ones that are reported most often. Okay, well, thank you so much for participating in this podcast. We greatly appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks okay. for having me. You've been listening to Dr. Brian Bride discuss secondary traumatic stress on Living Proof. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.